Well, happy Resurrection Day. In uh, the Lutheran church today, they celebrate Resurrection Day. This was just over 500 years ago that Martin Luther, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the, to the walls of the, of the, the doors of the church and, and began the, the Reformation in the, in the world. Um, it's also the eve of All Saints Day. And, uh, and there's also a satanic holiday that's celebrated today. But I'm not really sure what that's called. I forget the name of it. So just kidding, but not completely. Be excellent in what is good, Paul says. Be innocent of evil. So let the hearer understand. But I'm not going to preach about that today. But uh, I do want to just remind us a little bit about our liturgy today as we look at these two great commandments that Jesus gives us. When I became an Anglican, it was really because I was looking for mature Christian men who would, who would mentor me, who would disciple me in the faith, help me to grow into maturity. At, at 22, I knew that I needed to learn a lot of things, and definitely I did. And I went seeking some older men who would, who would, who would mentor me, who would allow me to watch how they lived and follow their example. And by the grace of God, I was led to All Souls Episcopal Church in Jacksonville, Florida, what I didn't know that along with that mentorship, that leadership, those Christian men, I would also find a, a scaffolding, if you will, a liturgy in, that, that surrounds and, and, and sort of sets up the worship among the Episcopal kind of Anglican tradition. And, and I just, I'm so thankful for it today, having been ordained now just over 20 years in uh, the Anglican serve order. And, um, and, and so I just wanted to to think with you for a moment about that this morning in the context of these commandments that Jesus gives to us. Let me remind you of, of the context of the passage we have here from, from, uh, from Mark 12. Um, Jesus is come to Jer Jerusalem. He's come to the temple. He is in the midst of uh, his adversaries, those who represent the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body. Ultimately, they were the ones who will condemn Jesus and send him to the cross and as Jesus comes into, this, uh, into the temple area and Jerusalem, he becomes confronted by the various groups of uh, leaders within the, the Sanhedrin, that ruling body. The, the, the Pharisees come, the, the Bible thumpers, the, the fundamentalists, if you will, of the day. They are the ones who know the scriptures inside and out. They're lay preachers. They're out in the territories and they're, and they're Bible thumping all the time in the Old Testament sense. And they come and, and, and they want to talk to Jesus about paying taxes and whether or not he should pay taxes. And they try to get him into a political conversation. Imagine that, first century uh, Israel. They had political divisive conversations, uh, just as we do today. Then the Sadducees come. They're sort of the, 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 the upper level, the, the, the classy folks, the elitists. And they don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so they begin to ask Jesus about marriage and remarriage and who will be married. If you marry, if, if one woman ended up marrying seven brothers, ancient custom, you know, whose, whose husband would she be in heaven? And Jesus has to talk about the resurrection. And so they deal, they're, they're confronting him with these things because they want to challenge Jesus. They want to, they want to trip him up. They're, they're, they're attempting to, to put Jesus under judgment. And he profoundly just blows them away with his answers. And then we have this, this young scribe come forward. A scribe was, if you want to think about it in a modern sense, he was, the, he was a lawyer. Uh, he was an expert in the law. Knew the, the Torah in and out. 
particularly the first five books that, that which we make up the Torah. If you look at that, that psalm we read from Psalm 119, it reflects this idea that, that our, our salvation is in perfectly keeping the law of God and, and his commandments and, that, and his statutes and his ways. And, and that's what Psalm 19, 119 described to you today. But this, this, this scribe is different because he, he comes alone, much like the rich young ruler that we talked about a few weeks ago. And he comes asking Jesus to weigh in on what would have been a very popular topic for rabbis and other leaders within Israel. What is the, what, what commandment, not necessarily what commandment is the greatest, although that's the way we interpret the world, but what commandment supersedes all? Sort of like, what's the, what's the commandment that, that not only Jewish people should, should, rep, should recognize, but, but the whole world should recognize? And summarize it for us. Give us sort of a, a, um, a summary of that. And, and this was not, Jesus was not the only one to offer an answer. It was quite a few rabbis. Rabbi Hael had said, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do it to other people. Sounds like the negative version of the, of the golden rule, right? Um, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do to other people. Uh, other rabbis offered things like Habakkuk 2.4, um, the righteous shall live by faith, which is interesting given that this is Reformation Day. Um, others would quote from Proverbs chapter 3, you know, Trust the Lord in all your ways. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he will direct your path. Even some rabbis would say, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus 19. But, but the question comes to Jesus and he offers a, just the most incredible answer. <laughs> that, that it's almost like you wonder why no one had offered this answer before. But they hadn't, apparently. At least it's not recorded to us. Jesus, what is the, what is the greatest commandment? What commandment supersedes? And, and we know that the scribe was impressed because it says it in the text. He was, he was marveling at Jesus' answer. And in fact, says, yes, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself supersedes all the system of sacrifice and all the rituals of, of sacrifice in the temple life. Now, I remind you, they're in the, the shadow of the temple that this scribe is affirming Jesus, saying, this is the summary of the law. This is, the, this is what supersedes all else. That system of atoning for sin through the offering of sacrifices, morning and evening, every day in the life of a faithful Jewish person. And yet, the scribe recognizes that Jesus has answered correctly. At the heart of God's law is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We say this summary of the law every Sunday. It, it's a part of our, we, you, we've already done it this morning. If you want to turn to 123 in the red prayer book and follow along, it may be helpful to see that. We say that every, every week. We, we, we recite that, that summary of the law, except in the season of Lent, where we actually go through all ten commandments. And if you think about it, the, the summary of the law perfectly encapsulates the Ten Commandments. The first five, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, reflects the first five commandments, which are, which are the vertical commandments. And then the second, loving neighbor itself, reflects the horizontal commandments, the, the second five. 
Now you wonder why is honoring God, father and mother important? Why is that included in the first half? Well, because as we honor our father and mother and the office of father and mother, we are pointing our children and we ourselves are pointed towards God who is our father in heaven. So it's the, the vertical, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors, ourselves. Jesus perfectly summarizes all, all of these. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We read it. Scott read it as the first lesson this morning. It's, it was known by every Jewish person. As a matter of fact, faithful liturgical Jews should say the Shema every day. They should write it in little pieces of the paper and connect it to their body in some way to, to be on their doorpost of their house so they would always remember this. To love God with the totality of who we are. The second comes from Leviticus 19 where, where as, as the law is being unpacked, uh, this, the Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus takes these two and he links them together. He fuses them together in a way that is so powerful. I would suggest to you that most people who are religious, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but most people who are religious, who are spiritual, seek to do one or the two, one or the other. They seek to love God fervently, whole heart, mind, and strength. And then the, other, then the other group, I'd say, would suggest that the others seek to love their neighbor as themselves in a radical way. It seems to me that part of the, the problem of religion in, in our world is that, is that we do one or the other to the exception of the other. So, you, you know, you, you, you do some terrible act in the name of God that totally disregards love, loving others. Or we, we try to love others in a radical way, but fail to understand that, that the reason we can love others is because of the God who has loved us. And so there's this severing. I, I've seen it in the mask mandate. Uh, you know, it's like some people are saying we, we shouldn't be wearing masks. We should be trusting God. If, if we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, why are we afraid to take our mask off? And then on the other side, I hear people say, if we, if we love our neighbors as ourselves, we would keep our mask on because loving, this is how we can demonstrate it. And if, if it makes my neighbor feel safer for me to wear my mask, I should wear my mask. But you see the problem? It's, it's one or the other. But Jesus fuses the two together in a way that we can't break apart, that we're constantly challenged by, that we constantly have to ask our our. our ourselves, are, are, we, are we doing both simultaneously? Are we striving to? You see, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbors myself. As a matter of fact, to, to demonstrate my love for God is in fact to love my neighbor. Then there's a moral demand that is placed upon me. I can't just love God and not do anything about it. I have to demonstrate my love. At the same time, I, I, can't, I can't say that I love, and this is coming from 1 John 4.20, I can't say that I love God if I don't love my neighbor. John makes this point very clear in his epistle. How can you love God whom you've not seen when you can't love your brother whom you have seen? If in fact the God who's revealed himself is one who loves every person, imago Dei, made in his image, intrinsic value because of who they are, not because of what they've done, or haven't done, then, then we're forced 
to deal with this moral demand that, the, that, that loving God and loving neighbor place upon us as they are fused together. Now, it's hard to know what this young scribe's motive was. We aren't really told much about him. In the parallel accounts in Matthew 22 and Luke 10, we get the sense that there's a little bit of a, a, a tr- trying to trap Jesus again, much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In this passage, though, it marks the way Mark records it. You don't see that at all. There doesn't seem to be any animosity. As a matter of fact, he, he commends Jesus. He, he acknowledges it. He's even willing to, to admit that the, that the sacrificial system is not as important as this summary of the law that Jesus has given. The scribe wants to judge the law perfectly, and perhaps Jesus. But Jesus judges the scribe. Jesus turns the tables and judges the man before him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God does not mean you're in the kingdom of God. Now, if I'm the young scribe, I'm going, wait a minute, we're talking about the law, Jesus. Why are you bringing up the kingdom of God? Well, that's what Jesus does. He's reminding us of the kingdom of God, that that God's way, God's truth, God's power, God's kingdom His rule is breaking into our broken world, our divided, politically fragmented, socially isolated world. You are not far from the kingdom of God, he says. Now, if you look at our liturgy, we say the summary of the law, but right after that we say something called the Kyriades, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. The word Kyrie is Greek, and we, we kind of retain that. As a matter of fact, that Kyrie eleison, if, you're, if, you, if, you, if you were conscious in the 80s, you remember that song that came out. Um, and it just means, Lord, you know, have mercy. Kyrie is Lord. And so this, we, we say the Kyrie, the, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, right after we say the summary of the law. Why do we do that? We do it because we recognize that Yes, this is, Jesus, you've spoken right. This is the summary of the law. To love God, heart, soul, mind, strength. Love me versus myself. This, this is what it's all about. And yet we recognize that we are incapable of doing that. That we fall short of doing that. And so we cry out, Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. It's our inability to keep those two commandments. If we are honest before God, I mean, yes, we are to make attempts. We're to work towards that. Some of us do it better than others, either one or the other. Occasionally, somebody does a pretty good job of trying to do both. But, but we all fall short of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Ashley Knoll is a theologian the Anglican tradition that, that spoke at a, uh, a banquet that Jody and I were privileged to attend on Tuesday night up in Atlanta. And um, Ashley is this very un, um, I don't know, he's just, he, he just wouldn't think, you see this guy, he's just kind of average Joe, right? You know? but, but Ashley's got a ministry to elite athletes, um, Olympic level athletes. As a matter of fact, I met him because of a young man, Maxime Rooney, who, who swam at UF. It was a, it didn't make the Olympics by 
a fraction of a second, but, but, but through Maxime, I met this Ashley Knoll. And Ashley works with these elite Olympic class athletes all the time. And, and in the banquet, Ashley talked a little bit about working with these athletes and, and what he's learned about how their psyche works. And, and, and basically, it was, it was quite sad to hear because he talked about the fact that how, how much effort these young men and women put into their sport. They give everything to it. Even if they're in college, they are working, they're working so, so very hard. But he said at the end of the day that winning is only slightly better than losing. Oh, for sure, for a little while, it's wonderful to win. But quickly after you've obtained even that gold medal, it begins to wane. And the expectations of repeated performance begin to weigh upon the athlete. And the greatest fear that these these young men and women who are maybe 18, 19, 21 years old is that maybe they was just a fluke. Maybe they've peaked at 19. And that while they're on the A-list now, in six months, there'll be a has-been. There'll be somebody who had potential but never lived into it. Now imagine, I mean, most of us dream of that kind of success and we think, boy, if I just had one medal, I would be so happy. And I, that's my thought. You know, man, I would invite all of you to my house. You'd see my gold medal, you know, and then we'd go have a bowl of ice cream. But in order to get to that place, the demand and the discipline that it takes, you don't fall into a gold medal. You work your tail off. And their fear is that perhaps they won't be able to do it again. And without Christ in their life, likely they will, they will they'll literally drive themselves crazy attempting to re, recapitulate, what, redo again and again and again. I mean, I, I understand... Um, one of, the, one of the premier swimmers of our time contemplated suicide after having won many medals. But that fear of, but what happens if I don't perform the next time? What if I don't stay at that level? What will people say? Will they cast me aside? And it, it, it's interesting to me, I think we are coming to a place in our culture where we have become so far from the Christian story that, that, that particularly our younger generations feel this incredible weight to create their own identity, to earn the respect of their peers, and to stay in that place for fear that they will be pushed aside or canceled or ostracized, cast off. And so there's this constant expectation to keep performing and living and, and putting things on social media that will impress people and get them to, to continue to, to, to keep them in their circle of influence. And, and it's on and on and on. And the greatest fear is that, well, we'll just be cast off. Have you ever been ghosted on social media? <laughs> it's, it's a terrible feeling. Just to have people just to like, just not return your calls, not return your texts, not, not respond to your, to unfriend you. I mean, it's like, you know, it's this sense of, and, 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 and I think that there's a sense in which there's, it's all about being earned. 
and, and, and achieving. And, and is that where, where, where Jesus wants us to be? Is he says, here's the summary of the law. This is it. Love God and neighbors. Love, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. No, not at all. Jesus comes to each of us. And he says, you understand the summary of the law? You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there yet, but you're not far from the kingdom of God. Yes, you should love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nothing else, no one else is worthy of your devotion. No matter how precious your child or grandchild or parent or career, nothing else is worthy of that level of devotion except God. Yes, you should love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only thing that can bear the weight of that devotion. And yes, you should love your neighbor as yourself as a demonstration of your love for God because when we acknowledge that God is God, he makes moral demand and he has made every human being in his image. And there is intrinsic value in every human person. And we should honor that value regardless of what people say or how they act or how we would disagree with them. They are image bearers. But the failure is to continue to try to live up to that law on your own. To think that somehow you can obtain salvation, that you can accomplish it in your own strength. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to the temple with all the religious folk around him putting him on trial, attempting to thwart him, to, to undo him, to judge him. And Jesus says, I come to offer you a gift that you could never earn, but that I freely give in my body and blood. Early in our service, there's a collect for purity. And it goes like this. Again, you can open up to 123 and follow along if that would be helpful. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. It's an acknowledgement that we all fall short of keeping God's law. No secrets are hid. No matter how good you are at making people think you're a righteous person, no secrets are hid. But then it goes on to say, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily serve you to the glory of your name. It's grace. Well, I love the liturgy of the Anglican church because it's so grace-filled. It reminds us over and over again that yes, the Lord knows the th secret thoughts of our hearts, but he offers to cleanse us, to cleanse our thoughts and minds, that we might perfectly love him and worthily magnify his holy name. God offers us what we can never do by ourselves, 
and what we will exhaust to the point of death ourselves trying to earn. Jesus comes and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now receive me. Surrender to my love. Accept that I loved you not because of what you've done or what you've earned, who you are, but because I love you. Because you're made in my image. And then in Christ, we become empowered to begin to truly live out the law. It's not that we, yes, we accept the grace and then we just forget about the law. No, we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to fulfill it. 1 John 4, 19 says that we love God because he first loved us. As we understand that perfect love of God for us, it begins to bring out in us a love for God. We're able to love God because he first loved us. And it empowers us to love our neighbors. And, and, and Paul says in Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And what is his good pleasure? That we would learn to love each other sacrificially. That we would forgive one another. That we would care more for others' needs than for our own. That the law and the summary of the law should begin to truly be lived out in us, not as an effort to gain salvation, but in a recognition of the God who's freely given himself for us. But when we fail, we cry out the Kyrie. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And it draws us back to the cross where God gave his life for us in the person of Jesus that we might not be condemned but through Christ redeemed and empowered to continue to be salt and light in our world. Learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength and learning to love neighbor self fused together inseparably in Christ because of his cross. And resurrection. Let us pray. Father, on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Reformation Sunday, Lord, on this day when we give thanks, Father, for all that you have done in, to us and through us and in us in Christ Jesus, Father, we cry out and say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Father, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, those of us who know you, to love and serve you. But Father, may we never fail to recognize that it is nothing we do, nothing we earn, but simply receive in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.